0: Chapter 18 of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There are many arguments against industry. Much is to be said against its wholesale practice. For one thing, habitual diligence, of whatever sort, begets other habits hard to break, habits that persist in plaguing a man during his periods of indolence. AND PERHAPS DURING HIS WHOLE LIFE. EARLY RISING IS ONE OF THE MOST ANNOYING OF THESE HABITS. WHILE IT CANNOT BE SAID THAT TOM PARKER HAD EVER LABORED ARDUOUSLY AT ANYTHING, NEVERTHELESS HE HAD FOLLOWED HIS CALLING FAITHFULLY. AND THE PECULIAR EXIGENCIES OF THAT CALLING HAD MADE OF HIM A LIGHT AND FITFUL SLEEPER. HE HAD SO OFTEN USED THE EARTH AS A MATTRESS AND HIS SADDLE AS A PILLOW that sun up invariably roused him, and as a consequence he liked to tell people that he could do with less sleep than any man in Texas. That was, in fact, one of his pet complaints. It was true that old Tom had never slept long, but it was also true that he slept oftener than any man in Texas. He was up and dressed by daylight, and until breakfast time he engaged himself in purposeless and noisy pursuits this futile energy however diminished steadily until about nine-thirty after which his day was punctuated by a series of cat-naps as a broken sentence is punctuated by dots and dashes that small room at the rear of his office barber had cleared of its dusty accumulations of its saddles and saddle-bags its rusty winchesters its old newspapers and disorderly files and had transformed into a retreat for him she had overcome his inherent prejudice against innovations of any sort by arguing gravely that the head of every firm should nay must have a private sanctum tom approved of the change after he became accustomed to it for he was subjected to fewer irritating distractions there than elsewhere before long in fact he acquired the ability to doze placidly through almost any sort of business conference in the outer office. It was his practice to sleep from nine-thirty until eleven, when Bob fetched him a glass of orange juice with a spike in it. This refreshing beverage filled him with new energy to tackle the issues of the day, and thereupon began a routine as fixed as some religious ritual. First he smacked his lips, then he cleared his throat loudly several times, after which his chair creaked as he massaged his rheumatic leg. Promptly, upon the count of twenty, he emerged from the inner office, slamming the door energetically behind him. Whether Bob was alone or engaged with clients, old Tom's air was always the same. It was that of a busy man, weighed with grave responsibilities. He frowned, he muttered, hurriedly gotta see a man back in an hour anybody calls tell him to wait this took him to the front door which he also slammed behind him there being a certain force and determination to the sound of a slamming door then he limped down the street to judge halloran's office the judge usually had the checkerboard out and set when tom arrived afternoons passed in much the same manner Night found Tom, if not actually exhausted from the unceasing grind, at least pleasurably fatigued thereby, and ready for an after-dinner doze. He considered himself seriously overworked. This morning Bob was alone at her desk when he came out, and something about her appearance caused the old warrior to look twice. He was exactly on time, but the judge could wait. He was a cranky old scoundrel anyhow, was Judge Halloran, and it would do him good to cool his heels for a few minutes. Tom paused with his hand upon the doorknob. "'My goodness, son, you're all dressed up,' he said, as he noted Bob's crisp white dress, the rose upon her bosom, the floppy hat that framed her face. Church sociable somewhere?' "'No, Dad.' "'What's going on?' "'Nothing in particular.' "'You certainly are sweet.' Tom's bleak gray face softened, then some vague regret peered forth from his eyes. "'Certainly our sweet, but... but what?' the girl smiled up at him. "'Oh, I don't know. Seems like he ain't quite the same boy you was. "'You're changing lately somehow, getting more like your mother every week. "'I like that, of course,' he said quickly. "'But I'd like awful well to see you in your ranch clothes again.' I bet you clean forgot how to ride and rope and... You know very well I haven't. I'm a bit rusty, perhaps. But remember, I'm a pretty busy girl these days. I know, Tom sighed. I'm wore out, too. What do you say we close up the old factory and take a rest? Let us get a couple of broncs and go up to the territory for a spell. Used to be a lot of wild turkeys in a place I know. It'd do us a lot of good. Why, Dad, we can't do that. And besides, those turkeys were killed out years ago. Hmm, I suppose so. Ain't much left to shoot at but tin cans. Come to think of it, there was a pause. I don't reckon you could handle a six-gun like you used to, Bob. You think not? Try me sometime and see, said the girl. Apparently Tom believed there was no time like the present, for he slid his right hand under the left lapel of his coat, and when he brought it away, there was a large single-action Colt's revolver in it, a massive weapon, upon the mother-of-pearl handle plates of which were carved two steers' heads. Those steers' heads Tom had removed from a gun belonging to a famous bad man, suddenly deceased, and there was a story that went with them. "'Now see here,' Bob protested. "'One of these new policemen will pick you up some day.' "'Pshaw! Nobody would pick me up, Just for toting a gun, the old man declared. With practiced fingers, he extracted the shells one by one. I feel right naked without a six-shooter. I feel like I'd cast a shoe or something. I wish you would give up carrying it. Let's see you do a few tricks, Bob. Do the roll. Remember, she don't stand cocked. Miss Parker rose to her feet and took the weapon. She balanced it in her hand, then spun it, rolled it, fanned it, went through a routine of lightning sleight-of-hand that Tom had taught her long before. "'Let's see you do a few shots,' her father urged when she handed it back to him. "'In here?' "'Sure, it's our shanty. Drive a few nails. Or, I'll tell you, kill the bear and save the tenderfoot's life.' Tom pointed to a Winchester calendar on the rear wall which bore the lithographic likeness of an enraged grizzly upon the point of helping himself to a hunter. Why we'd have the whole town running in. Go on, son, make it speak. Bears is easy killed. Nonsense. Reluctantly, Tom reloaded his weapon and thrust it back into its shoulder holster. Regretfully he murmured, Dog gone. We never have any more fun. He turned toward the door. "'Where are you going, Dad?' "'I gotta see a man back in an hour. "'Anybody calls?' "'You know you won't be back in an hour. "'Where are you going?' "'I gotta see. "'What is it?' "'Bob' hesitated. "'I wish you'd stay here. "'I think Mr. Gray arrived this morning, "'and I expect him in.' "'Tom decided that he had made Judge Halloran wait long enough. "'He should have been in the old rascal's King's Row by this time. "'So he said, briskly, Wish I could, son, but I got to see a man. Mr. Gray was here several times before he went away, but you were always out. When her father showed no inclination to tarry, Barbara spoke with more impatience than she had ever used toward him. I wanted to meet you, Dad, for he has come back on purpose to take up that Jackson well. If I devote all my time to business, it seems to me, you could afford to sacrifice an hour to it just as once. That checker game can wait. Tom Parker stiffened. Sacrifice an hour to business just once. That was a blow. As if his nose was not at the grindstone day in and day out. As if he were not particularly chained to this office. As if unremitting application to business had not wrecked him, worn him to the bone, made an insomniac out of him. That was the worst about children, boys especially, They twitted their elders. They thought they were the whole works. They assumed undue importance. Tom was offended, and being a stubborn man, he bowed his back. "'Tell him to wait,' he said curtly. "'I'll get around to it as soon as I can.' "'Why, Dad, he isn't a man who can wait. This deal won't wait, either. I've been talking over that Jackson well with, with a man, and I got him.' I asked you not to mention it, not to a soul. It is a very important matter and-now Tom had not discussed the Jackson well except casually with Judge Halloran, but every word that Bob spoke rankled, so he interrupted with a resentful query. Ain't I equal to handle an important deal? Bob acknowledged quickly that he was. She had not meant to criticize his ability to conduct negotiations of the very highest importance but she was surprised in view of her earnest request that he had even mentioned this particular matter to anybody. She reminded him that insurance was his forte and that their understanding had been that she was to take exclusive charge of the oil business. While she was talking, Tom realized with a disagreeable shock that of late there had been no insurance written, none whatever. He had given the matter no thought, but such was undoubtedly the case and in his daughter's words he felt a rebuke now he could not abide rebukes he had never permitted anybody to criticize him for once that unconscious irritation that had been slowly accumulating with him flamed up it was an irritation too vague too formless to put into words especially inasmuch as words did not come easily to tom parker when he was mad Without further comment, the old man pulled his gray wide-awake lower over his eyes and limped out of the room. But he did not go to Judge Halloran's office. He was too sore to risk further offense at the hands of one who took malicious delight in antagonizing him. So he walked the streets. The more he pondered Bob's accusation, an accusation it surely was, the angrier he became, not at her, of course, for she was blood of his blood his other and better self, but angry at himself for allowing the reins to slip out of his fingers. He was the head of the firm. It was due to his ripe judgment and keen common sense that the business ran on. His name and standing, it was that gave it stability. Perhaps he had permitted the girl to do more than her share of the work, and hence her inclination to take all the credit for their joint success was only natural. But it was time to change all that, time to turn a big deal without her assistance. That was the thing to do. Handle the Jackson lease in his own way and turn it over for a price far in excess of $75,000. Anybody could sell things for less than they were worth, but it took real ability to realize their full value. Here was a snap, a chance to clean up big money. Bob said so. Why not? Then, take over the lease for himself and her Pay something down, hold it for a few weeks, then resell it at a staggering profit. Such things were being done. Tom did not know just how, but he could easily find out. And there were several thousand dollars in the bank to the firm's account. If that was not enough to meet the first payment, he could probably get Bell, Nelson, to give him another mortgage on something. Or was it that he would have to give the mortgage to Bell? It didn't matter. The thing to do was to jump out to the extension by the well and show Bob that he was as good a businessman as she. Better, in fact. A bus was about to leave, so Tom clambered in. Barbara Parker had to acknowledge that she was more than a bit thrilled at the prospect of seeing Calvin Gray again. She had assured her father glibly that there was nothing going on that day, but there was. It was something to realize that a mere telegram from her had brought a man of Mr. Gray's importance clear across the country, and that he was coming straight to her. What mysterious magic lay in the telegraph? Ever since their first meeting, he had awakened in her a sort of breathless excitement, the precise significance of which she could not fathom, and that excitement now was growing hourly. It could not mean love. Bob flushed at the thought, for she had no intention of falling in love with anybody. She was too young, the world was too new and too exciting for that, and besides, her life was too full, her obligations were too many to permit of distractions, agreeable or disagreeable. Nor, for that matter, was Gray the sort of man to become seriously interested in a simple person like her. He was complex, many-sided, cosmopolitan his extravagant attentions were meaningless and yet one could never tell men were queer creatures perhaps little prickles ran over bob she felt her whole body galvanize when she saw gray coming he entered as she knew he would enter with the suggestion of having been blown thither upon the breast of a gale he was electric he throbbed with energy he was bursting with enthusiasm and his delight at seeing her was boyish. Bob colored rosily at his instant, an extravagant appreciation of her effort to look more pleasing than usual. But embarrassment followed her first thrill. She could not believe his compliments were entirely genuine. Therefore she took refuge behind her coolest, her most businesslike demeanor. For a while they talked about nothing, although to each the other was eloquent. Then Bob came as quickly as might be to the matter she had wired him about. He listened with smiling lips and shining eyes, but he heard only the bare essentials of her story, for his thoughts were galloping. His mind was busy with new impressions of her. Other voices than hers were in his ears. That was his rose at her breast. She had been pleased at his coming. Otherwise, she would not have paid him the girlish compliment of wearing her best evidently she cared for him or was she merely impressed flattered women had called him romantic whereas he knew himself to be theatric he wondered if she i told jackson you'd be out to look at the well in the books today bob was saying he won't wait an hour longer splendid i came the instant you telegraphed dropped everything in fact some of my men are waiting to see me but I haven't even notified them of my arrival. Important business, too, nevertheless. I hurried right here. They can wait." Gray laughed gladly. Jove, how becoming that hat is. I hired the best-looking car I could find, and it will be here in a minute. I told myself I had earned a day with you, and I wouldn't spoil it by permitting you to drive. I've so much to talk to you about, business of all sorts that I scarcely know where to begin." Now Bob had expected to drive to the Northwest Extension with Gray. Nothing else had been in her mind. Her field clothing was even laid out, ready for a quick change. But a sudden contrariness took hold of her. She experienced a shy perversity that she could not explain. "'Oh, I'm sorry I can't go. I simply can't,' she declared. He was so obviously disappointed that her determination gained strength. She was surprised at her own mendacity when she explained the utter impossibility of leaving the office and told a circumstantial fib about a title that had to be closed with people from out of town. The more she talked, the more panicky she became at the thought of being for hours alone with this forceful, this magnetic, this overwhelming person. Strange in view of the fact as she had been looking forward to it for days. In order finally to get him away, before she could change her mind, she promised to hurry through her affairs, and then drive out and bring him home. There was no time to lose. Jackson was growing impatient. It was a wonderful deal. There were other days coming. When Gray had gone and Bob was alone, she drew a deep breath. Her pulse was rapid. She was tingling as if from some stimulating current. What a man! What an effect he had upon people! What a fool she had been not to go! The road to Burke Burnett is well surfaced for some distance outside of Wichita Falls. Therefore Gray leaned back with his eyes closed as the car sped over it, picturing again his meeting with Barbara, recalling her words of greeting, puzzling over the subtle change in her demeanor at the last. Perhaps he had frightened her. He was given to over-enthusiasm. This would be a lesson. Queer how women interfere with business. Here he was going at things backward, whirling out to the oil fields when he should be with McWade and Stoner. They would probably be distracted at his non-arrival. But this was business, too, and she would drive out to get him. There would be the long ride back. Far away across the undulated prairie fields, the horizon was broken by a low, dark barricade, the mass derricks of the town-site pool. So thickly were they grouped that they resembled a dense forest of high black pines, and not until Gray drew closer could he note that this strange forest was leafless. By now the roads were quagmires, and the unceasing current of traffic had thickened and slowed down until Gray's car rocked and plunged through a hub-deep channel of slime. There was but one route to the extension, and it led through the very heart of Burke Burnett. There were no detours around the town, no way of beating the traffic. Therefore vehicles, no matter how urgent their business, were forced to fall in line and allow themselves to be carried along like chips in a stream of tar. Burke was a one-story town or at least most of its buildings projected only one story above the mud. And that mud was mixed with oil. Leakage from wells, pipeline, storage tanks had made the mass underfoot doubly foul and sticky. And where it was liquid, it shone with iridescent colors. Mud was everywhere, on the sidewalks, inside the stores, on walls and signboards, on the skins and clothing of the people. Through the main street, the procession of cars ploughed, then out across the railroad tracks and toward the open country beyond. When it came to a halt as it frequently did, above the hum of idle motors could be heard the clank of pumps, the fitful coughing of gas engines, the hiss of steam. This, of course, was soon drowned in a terrific din of impatient horns, a blaring, brazing snarl at the delay. The whole line roared metallic curses at the cause of its stoppage. Even the railroad right away had been drilled, switch engines, shunted rows of flats almost between the straddling derrick legs. Gray's driver had been dumb thus far. Now he broke out abruptly. Speaking about mud, I was crossing the street on a plank the other day when I saw a brand-new derby laying in the mud and picked it up. Underneath it was a guy's head. "'Hello,' I said. "'You're in pretty deep, ain't you?' The fellow looked up at me and said, "'This ain't bad. You ought to see my brother. I'm standing on his shoulders.' The chauffeur laughed loudly at his own humor. "'Some country, I call it. But the sun's out, so it will be blowing sand tomorrow.' When Burke were had been left behind, another and vaster island of Derrick's came into view. It marked the Burke-Wagoner Pool, part of the Northwest Extension, so-called. The car was waiting its turn to cross a tiny toll bridge spanning a sluggish creek, the bed of which ran seepage oil from the wells beyond, when the driver grumbled aloud, Four bits to cross a forty-foot bridge. There's a graft for you. One old nester above here tore a hole in his fence opposite a wet place in the road.' and charged us half a dollar to drive through his pasture. But it was cheaper than getting stuck. He had to carry his coin home in an oat sack. After a few weeks, somebody got to wondering why that spot never dried out, and come to investigate, what do you think? I seldom think when I'm being entertained, his passenger declared. Well, that poor stupid had dammed the creek, and every night he shut the gate and flooded his road. If the clustered derricks of the townsite pool were impressive, there was something positively dramatic about the extension. Burke Burnett had been laid out in lots and blocks, and the drilling had followed some sort of orderly system. But here were no streets, no visible plan. This had been a wheat field, and as well, after well had come in, derricks, drilling rigs, buildings, tanks, piles of timber and casing, had been laid down with complete disregard of all save the owner's convenience. Overnight, new pipelines were being laid. For hours counted here, and the crude had to find outlet. Fuel had to be brought in. These pipelines were never buried, and in consequence, the ceaseless flow of traffic was forever forced to seek new channels. The place became a bewildering maze through which teams floundered and motor vehicles plunged at random. Towns had sprung up, for this army of workers was isolated in a sea of mud, but whereas Burke was more or less permanent, Newton, Bradley's Corners, Bridgetown, were cities of canvas boards and corrugated iron. By day they were mean, filthy, grotesque. By night they became incandescent, for every derrick was strung with lights and the surplus supply of gas was burned in torches to prevent its accumulating in ravines or hollows in explosive quantities. They were Mardi Gras cities. Day by day the fields spread onward toward the Red River. The whole region smelled of oil. Fire, of course, was an ever-present menace. Newton, for instance, had been wiped out several times, for it lay on a slope down which a broken pipeline could belch a resistless wave of flame. And yet even the place was a litter of charred timber, twisted pipe, and crumbled sheets of galvanized iron. Owing to this menace, the residents had taken the only possible precaution. They had dug in. Behind each place of business was a cyclone cellar, a bomb-proof shelter, into which human bodies and stocks of merchandise could be crowded. Gray drove directly to the lease he had come to examine, and was disappointed to learn that the owner had just left. This was annoying. Bob had assured him that he was expected. Inquiry elicited from the surly individual in charge, no more than the reluctant admission that Jackson had been called to the nearest telephone, but would be back sometime. There was nothing to do but wait. Gray let his car go, then made a cursory examination of the property. He could see little and learn less. The caretaker agreed that the well was pumping one hundred and fifty barrels a day. Some evasiveness in this fellow's demeanor awoke Gray's suspicion. A sudden telephone call, the owner's absence when he expected a purchaser. Probably somebody else was after the property. It was decidedly worthwhile to wait. Gray was unaccustomed to inattention, incivility. And had anybody except Bob Parker put him in this position, he would have resented it. Under the circumstances, however, he could do nothing except cool his heels. As time passed, he began to feel foolish. By late lunchtime, he was irritable. And as the afternoon wore on, he grew angry. Why didn't Bob come as she had promised? He had lost a day, and days were precious. Evening found him wandering about aimlessly, in a villainous mood, but stubbornly determined to see this thing through at whatever cost. He had no wish to spend the night amid these surroundings, for respectable people shunned these oilfield camps after dark, and he knew himself to be conspicuous. It would add a ridiculous climax to a trying day to be hijacked, to be frisked of his jewelry. During the early dusk, he returned to the lease, only to find even the greasy caretaker gone. By this time, Gray was decidedly uncomfortable, and to add to his discomfort, he conceived the notion that he was being followed. On second thought, he dismissed this idea. Nevertheless, he took a roundabout course back toward the main street. It seemed odd to be floundering through inky shadows, feeling away through this miry chaos. When aloft, as far as the eye could see, the sky was lit. This phantom city of twinkling beacons gave one a sense of acute unreality, for it was an empty city, a city the work of which went on almost without the aid of human hands. The very soul of it was mechanical. Only here and there, where a drill crew was at work, did an occasional human figure move back and forth in the glare of low-hung incandescence. Nevertheless, the whole place breathed and throbbed. It was instinct with a tremendous vigor. From all sides came the ceaselessly rhythmic clank of pumps, the hiss of gas and steam, the gurgling flow of liquid. They were the pulse beats, the respirations, the blood flow of this live thing, and its body odor stung the nostrils. All night long it panted with its heavy labors, as if the gins that lifted those giant pump beans were vying with one another in a desperate endeavor. They were, for a fact. Haste, avarice, and arduous diligence was in the very air. Gray stared and marveled, for imagination was not lacking in him. Those derricks with their fires were high altars upon which were heaped ten thousand hopes and prayers. Altars of avarice, Towers of greed, that is what they were." He marveled, too, at the extremes these last few days had brought him, at the long cry from the luxurious Burlington Notch to this primitive land of fire-worshippers. Here only a few hours by motor, from paved streets and comfortable homes, was a section of the real frontier, as crude and as lawless as any he had ever seen, yonder, for instance, was the Red Lion, a regular Klondike dance-hall. He looked in it for a moment, but the sight of the hard-faced hoary, revolving cheek to cheek with men in overalls and boots, was nothing new. It did remind him of the March of Progress, however, to notice that the bartenders served Coca-Cola instead of Hooch. Hygienic but vain, he reflected, not at all like the brave old days. Farther up the street was a flaming theater, decorated with gaudy lithographs of women in tights that awoke a familiar echo the grimy figures headed thither might well be miners just in from el dorado or anvil creek gambling was practically wide open too and before long gray found himself in a superheated overcrowded back room with a stack of silver dollars which he scattered carelessly upon the numbers of a roulette table Roulette was much like the oil game. This was a good way in which to kill an hour. Absorbed in his thoughts, Gray paid little heed to those about him, until a large hand picked up one of his bets. Then he raised his eyes. The hand was attached to a muscular arm, which in turn was attached to a burly stranger of unpleasant mien. Gray voiced a good-natured protest, but the fellow scowled and refused to acknowledge his mistake. Noting that the man was flushed, Gray shrugged and allowed the incident to pass. This bootleg whiskey from across Red River was of a quality to scatter a person's eyesight. For some time, the game continued before Gray won again, and the dealer deposited thirty-five silver dollars beside his bet. Again, that sun-brown hand reached forth, but this time Gray seized it by the wrist. He and the stranger eyed each other for a silent moment, during which the other players looked on. Gray was the first to speak. ''If you're not as drunk as you seem,'' he said easily, ''you'll excuse yourself. If you are, you need sobering.'' With a wrench, the man undertook to free his hand. He uttered a threatening oath. The next instant he was treated to a surprise, for Gray jerked him forward, and simultaneously his empty palm struck the fellow a blinding, a resounding smack. Twice he smote that reddened cheek with the sound of an explosion. Then, as the victim flung himself backward, Gray kicked his feet from under him. Again he cuffed the fellow's face, this time from the other side. When he finally desisted, the stranger rocked in his tracks. He shook his head, he blinked, and he cursed. It was a moment before he could focus his whirling eyesight upon his assailant. When he succeeded, it was to behold the latter staring at him, with a mocking, threatening smile. The drunken man hesitated. He cast a slow glance around the room. Then muttering hoarsely, he turned and made for the door. He was followed by a burst of derisive laughter that grew louder as he went. Gray was in a better mood now than for several hours. He had vented his irritation. The air had cleared. After a while he discovered that he was hungry. No longer was he too resentful to heed the healthy warnings of his stomach, so he left the place. End of chapter 18